The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, creatives, media, entertainment, and technology. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. If you are truly watching this fight between ESPN parent Disney and Charter, the country's second largest cable provider, you'll know that it's not just another garden variety shakedown for fees on the eve of the NFL season. What you instead have are two businesses in advanced decline. ESPN is hemorrhaging subscribers and facing huge costs to renew with pro leagues and to switch to streaming. Cable TV, meanwhile, is falling victim to rampant cord cutting. Every player in media and entertainment is scratching and clawing for dollars. And so we had to book Evan Shapiro, the veteran exec and producer turned media cartographer and professor who hates to say he told you so, Hollywood. Just check out his LinkedIn, but do stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. My guest is Evan Shapiro. He is a colossus of a media cartographer, wears many hats. He teaches at both NYU and Fordham. He was a veteran media executive at NBC Universal at IFC. You've seen him involved with Portlandia. He is now consulting under eShap. He's on Substack. And again, you got to go to that LinkedIn and check out Evan Shapiro because this map of the constantly changing media universe is shared so frequently. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. I was thinking of you when I was at Disney World with my children uh, three weeks ago. That's super weird. And there were so many metaphors everywhere. You know, you've covered Disney's summer of disruption and summer of hell with everything in Bob Iger's ill-starred comeback, but was the best metaphor at Disney uh, the water fountains being so half-hearted and so half-baked that they would force you to buy $4.50 Dasani? Or was it, as my children point out at Hollywood Studios, the ice cream stands also offered bananas at $2.50. They weren't frozen bananas, but to quote uh, Arrested Development, there's always money in the bananas. There's always money in, in the, the bananas. Banana $2.50 bananas. And then I'm thinking about it as Charter, the second largest cable conglomerate in the United States, is having this showdown with Disney over ESPN charges, which are like the bane of every cable operator's existence. And 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 people are casting this as the battle for the soul of what's left of legacy media. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I do think there's a metaphor in the $2 banana and $18 bottle of water in that the television ecosystem became such an exploitation tool for Hollywood to extract dollars from the consumer at an unfair rate. They just ballooned the prices of the cable bundle because they could, because there was no alternative. To the point where when Netflix offered anything in response to that, in comparison, Consumers were like, yes, that's what I want. And then when it became, you know, streaming without commercials at eight bucks, it was a stampede. So there is that kind of very interesting metaphor about just overcharging a consumer for everything, raising prices. When you're captive, as yeah, I was right. in a hundred degree, you know, Kissimmee, Orlando, right. and had no, no choice. choice. And, your kids and the water is particularly right. sulfurous. And you can theoretically go, I know, I know I'm getting a little inside baseball here, but I was thinking about you. But the consumer, but the consumer will make you will That's take what I was thinking. Right. When they can, when they have a moment to do that. So, you know, the idea that the entire business strategy right now is to just raise prices. Like that's the business strategy in Hollywood right now. Not build a new product, not think about what the consumer really wants, not build a product around how consumers actually behave right now, but how do we possibly get back to the profit margins that were ridiculous to expect in the first place from the television bundle? And so, yes, I do think we're at a moment where you're going to watch the negotiation between Charter and Disney basically rewrite a lot of the rules around how content works in the United States 
because both sides don't have a choice but to rewrite those rules right now, which is what's going to make it incredibly, incredibly painful. My issue is, is that as we watch Hollywood up this strike by not being able to even agree what size table to sit at, it's the same type of thing. If Comcast and Charter and Disney and Disco Discovery Brothers, let's rewrite it. Yeah, yeah. Warner Brothers Discovery. And let's rewrite the rules where this makes sense, where I can embed Hulu and ESPN Plus and Disney Plus into my charter. Or, you know, Comcast and Charter are inventing this new Roku killer that's going to come out next year called Zumo. So their whole enterprise is built around this asymmetrical distribution that's not going to need a cable box anymore. That's what Charter is trying to negotiate for, the right to include the Disney apps in this new product that they're making with Comcast. If Brian Roberts and Bob Iger and David Zaslav and Bob Backish all got in a room and said, look, the pie looks like this. Let's figure out how to slice it up. You could probably figure it out. If all of the the folks in Hollywood sat down and said, let's try to align the interests of talent and writers and actors and grips to the success of the shows that they're working on, as opposed to trying to pay them as little as humanly possible so that we can keep all the money to pay David Zaslav's a quarter of a billion dollars a year. You could get to, yes, like creating equity shares, the messy deal that Apple just wrote is a good model for where the industry- Lionel, Lionel Messi and Major League Soccer in the United States. Correct. But he now gets a piece of every new subscriber who signs up for Apple TV Plus as a result of watching a soccer game. That's genius. This is fascinating for me, and there are overlays with what Taylor Swift is doing with AMC. Absolutely, And I mean, this yeah. real true summer of disruption, which again, your LinkedIn account, Evan Shapiro, I mean, there's a lot of self-congratulation and puffery and fluffery on LinkedIn, but uh, you could, and you do charge for your Substack and, and at some point, right? It makes sense yeah. in your consulting because we are in the thick of true disruption now. I've been a Time Warner cable customer in the past. That's been folded into another cable company. I've been a cable vision. Spectrum. Spectrum. I've been a cable vision customer when I lived in uh, Westchester in White Plains. It seems like every year they always have these brinksmanship things where like, uh-uh, Disney, you're not going to hold us up for ESPN. This is the last time. And they put up these janky ads that like, tell Disney you're not going to stand for this. But of course, Disney had the leverage because when football is in the air, when NFL is in the air, when college football is in the air, and college football is a little different, but you know you need ESPN. It's indispensable. You need Monday Night Football. And with that, if you can explain, Disney used that huge leverage to negotiate all the different secondary and tertiary channels they have and extract something to the tune of 8 to $10 from every shrinking cable customer, whether or not you wanted ESPN Deportes, right? Yeah. And in the last era, which ended about four years ago in 2019, there wasn't a lot of places to go for that football game. I mean, there so there was DirecTV, AT&T, and Fios in my same market with Spectrum. So you did have some competitive disadvantage if you didn't supply that game. And Charter, although I will say, they have famously knocked other channels off during the World Series. Like, this is not the first time this has happened, as you said. The difference here is, to your point, I think, Disney has almost no leverage. <laughs> the The product is, is, the genie is out of the bottle. You know, there aren't that many subscribers who are going to not, cord cutting is happening anyway. Charter basically said, look, the cable bundle is coming to an end. We have to reinvent what this product is. You holding us up over Monday Night Football doesn't make any sense. And that's pretty much the, I mean, they basically said, they, they came out this week and said, look, these are the economics of our business. It's f- up. You can't make us pay more. And by the way, you're just passing that cost on to the consumer, Disney. You know, perhaps if Bob Iger didn't admit he, he, he missed disruption happening to television earlier this summer, perhaps if Bob Iger wasn't behind the worst work stoppage in, uh, in media history, perhaps if Bob Iger had a strategy for fixing the company that he came back to try and fix, he would have more leverage. But right now, I just think he looks like, honestly, he looks like someone I wouldn't give the keys to my car to, to drive. Like he doesn't seem, he doesn't seem in the same place he was when he built the enterprise he's now trying to fix. Evan, explain this to me because I think that Disney would be the envy of everyone. And certainly it's had this Annus Horribilis with ESPN and ABC is nominally for sale. Nobody really watches the Disney channel. Turns out they paid way too much for Rupert Murdoch's Fox assets. I mean, 
It's not a huge comparative advantage if you could have The Simpsons on the Disney Plus thing. They're still in limbo over Hulu, of which they're going to consolidate control. It was interesting when I was at the Disney parks, Hulu was never mentioned. Hulu was like this distant NC-17 rated stepchild. The asymmetry of this is if you take a cable company like a Comcast or a Charter, which is enormous and still has enormous legacy distribution and some content, the rents that they're paying, the still outsized but diminishing rents that they're paying to Disney, Disney then uses to funnel Hulu and Disney Plus, which kind of cut out the cable company, right? You're just using the cable company as a dumb pipe at that point. You just want a Wi-Fi, a broadband connection. Yeah, there's two parts of that equation, though. In the old model, there was the guaranteed revenue of affiliate fees coming from Charter and Comcast for ESPN, even for the 80% of consumers that never watch ESPN. So 100% of Charter and Comcast customers pay for ESPN. Truly less than a quarter use the product on a regular basis. And they're paying. That's the most expensive part of your cable package is, is ESPN, unless you pay extra for HBO. So there is that component to it. The, the other thing is, I mean, Disney should, I've heard you talk about this before, they should be in the catbird seat. They should be in the driver's seat. The problem for, for Disney is those guaranteed fees are going away and they've traded it out for a direct-to-consumer business, which is really a slog. It's expensive to get customers. It's expensive to keep customers. It's expensive to get them back after they churn out. And that's the new direct. They now have to go into a retail business where the cable business was a wholesale business. So that's mm. a completely different thing. What's fascinating, though, is that Bob Iger is the same guy who came out on stage and said, we're going to lose we're going to lose twenty five billion dollars building this direct to consumer business. And now he's shying away from finishing the job instead of cutting their way to profitability, which I understand is the temptation because it looks super easy. What they should be doing is going back to what made them who they are today. Disney was not built on Walt Disney's back. Like, we don't talk about Mickey Mouse anymore. We talk about the princesses, which is all acquired content. Pixar, Star Wars, Monday Night Football. But Pixar, Hi. Monday Night Football, uh, you know, <laughs> ESPN, even ABC, these were all purchased products, right? Star Wars. Bob Iger didn't become successful by cutting and saving. He made these big, bold acquisitions and then turned them into massive universes, which then pay off at the parks. So instead of cutting back, imagine for a second if Disney leaned into what made them who they are today and they bought Roblox. Not instead of cutting, you added. You took your all this IP, including The Simpsons and all everything that they spent $75 billion for and put it into Roblox or Spotify. Well, let me let me channel the Wall Street analyst saying, I'm counting on you guys to cut debt. You owe a ton of money for this ill-starred, overpaid. You know, you paid Rupert, you over you paid when Rupert was selling, uh, you know, mm. well into his 90s as he drifts into the, the great hereafter or whatever it is. Uh, you also owe Comcast something like nine or ten billion dollars for the rest of Hulu, you are bleeding money on uh, streaming right now. It's not priced correctly. The cord cutters are killing you with ESPN while these rights are coming up for auction again. And then the asymmetry, and, and this is a little wonky, but I want you to parse it for our listeners. Someone like a Jeff Bezos is not, I mean, not Jeff Bezos, whatever's left of Amazon, a Andy Jassy, they're never going to be measured on their media spent or if Thursday night football is a dud. Um, YouTube, which is owned by Google, Google is what, a $3 trillion market cap? They're never going to be measured 1 on 1.6, right? Uh, or Apple's never going to, I'm sorry, Apple is a $3 trillion market cap. Yes. will never be measured on Major League Soccer. YouTube won't quite be measured on whatever it is that they're dabbling into. No, you know what they're going to be measured on? This is how things work now. Not how they're going to work in the future, but how they work now. On ARPU. Average revenue per user. On average revenue per user. On prop margin per, per, per unit installed. So no one's going to pay attention to the specific performance of Major League Soccer. They're going to look at how many people continue to buy new iPhones to get what's going to happen is a bundle of services along with this product. They're not going to look at necessarily how Thursday Night Football does, although Nielsen is now going to measure it with first-party data from, from Amazon. So we are going to get a better picture this season than we did last. But what they are going to do is take 
Thursday Night Football and put it on Black Friday this Thanksgiving when Aaron Rodgers and the Jets take on the Miami Dolphins in Miami. And they're going to turn that into the biggest entertainment shopping day in the history of mankind. And that is absolutely core for Amazon because you have been trolling the retailers, if you're Amazon, for the better part of 15 years. You've been inducing them to showroom shop with the app. So this is this is catnip for them, right? This gets you to buy, if we're still buying flat screen TVs or paper towels or dog food or diapers or whatever it is Amazon wants to sell. Well, and crucially, you're going to, that's the same thing as crucially, your prime membership two years from now is going to come with a fire TV. Do you know what I mean? And they're going to control the innards of, of that entire ecosystem and therefore be the gatekeeper on the front end of it. Um, you know, you can talk about, um, you know, Disney cutting back because they have all this debt. But as Amazon was being built, right, no one like they were. It was a long time before that was profitable. A very, very, very long time. And someone who has a strategy that knows where they're going can answer Wall Street's problems when that comes up. Because it isn't about television anymore. It's not about individual products. It's about the reason why ESPN worked was not because it was in a TV bundle, but because it was in a household bundle with TV and broadband and phone. That's what Amazon is building. That's what Apple is building. That's what Google is building. That's what Microsoft is building. By the way, that's what New York Times built Mm. as well. Disney has a television product and some theme parks. And that's about it. Disney has what Disney they Plus need. and Hulu. It has an but, ESPN but, but that's app. A television product. So but as that's long as it, as long as it has these relationships, it has an ESPN app that it it could theoretically charge fifty dollars a month for. I mean, I think it hits up against the problem when you realize the dream Disney Plus rational price for them is let's say twenty dollars a month. Hulu is what fifteen or twenty dollars a month, whether it's ad supported. ESPN, if you really want to, you know, cord cutters paradise, take it away is like fifty dollars. By then, plus the broadband sub- subscription, you're talking just reinventing the cable bundle. So where are you better off as a customer? Yeah, you are. And by the way, people, yes, absolutely. And and what we found is that there's an economic underpinning that actually makes sense for the consumer and for the supplier. But again, I think you're hyper-focused on one single product where we're not in, that's not the era we're in anymore. There's going to be publishers. People are going to be able to sell content and, and be an arms dealer. But ultimately, the companies that survive this new era are going to be ones that understand how to create bundles for their consumers. So yes, I don't think that there's a great rational price for individual streaming products from Disney. I do think there's a household bundle that they might offer with Parks and all their content and gaming and audio and other elements that they currently do not have that creates a competitive disadvantage for them in the marketplace. Like Warner Brothers Discovery, unfortunately Paramount, Disney, Fox, these publishers, they're going to go the way of magazines. They really are. And if they don't understand how to retool their business around this new lifestyle bundle operation, they're going to get bought and sold. Like Disney, I don't think Disney on its current trajectory, unless something truly dramatic happens, exists as a standalone company 48 months from now. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. It is a joy for me to finally have Evan Shapiro on. He is, I would say, the chief media cartographer in this disrupted industry. You could follow him on LinkedIn and Substack. He was a veteran media executive, award-winning producer. Uh, Gosh, you've been linked to Portlandia. I'm not going to bring up the dream of the 90s. Greg the Bunny, Hopeless Pictures, Brick City, The Onion News Network. You are well-traveled across NBC Uni, IFC. Uh, You also teach at NYU and Fordham, and you consult. I want you to focus in on the sports franchises because they still have pricing power. They're the last remaining linchpin, Mm -hmm. if you believe, of, of what's left of the cable bundle. Right, it's a reason why you roll over your cable vision or charter uh, subscription because you want to get Monday Night Football. It's too much of a pain to piece together the other thing. And we had bankruptcies in the regional sports network. So this mm. is the last thing. If you're a consumer of live sports, which is not very DVRable, people show up for these things. Advertisers still covet it. But to the extent that you're the NFL or you're MLB or you're NBA witnessing this kind of dirty laundry being aired between Disney ABC, you know, Disney ESPN and the cable company. Why? And I'm sure you get asked this a lot. Why can't you just be licking your chops at going straight to the consumer at some point? I know you'd rather get an advance. I know you'd rather be overpaid and be given like 10 year, $10 billion rights. But especially, Evan, with VR technology, with the ability 
to go straight to the consumer out there. Like I'm a huge LA Dodgers and LA Lakers fan. I live on the East Coast. I'd have significant willingness to pay for kind of, you know, half court access to the Lakers year round. And I would pay that directly to the NBA and to Los Angeles. And they can split the rents with LeBron or whoever instead of me giving it to Turner for TNT or for ESPN. When is that going to finally happen? It's a great question. I mean, I think for the, the the big national sports leagues and conferences, the money is just so good. I mean, just look at Indian Premier League cricket. <laughs> $6 billion in fees between Geo and Hotstar. Look at the NFL and just the billions of dollars that they're minting from the various slices. Like how many different ways did they slice? They sold, sold one playoff game to NBC for $110 million. One game. So I just don't think that the economics can be matched on on the super premium that they're paying for. And then add to the fact that going direct to the consumer is awful. It's a terrible experience. It's costly. It takes up an enormous amount of your organization's structure. There's a reason why WWE, which is a massive- Goes through um, Peacock, yeah. Yeah, they sold the whole thing to Peacock. Rather than manage the nightmare of churn and lifetime value and all the mechanics and technology necessary to operate it direct to consumer, it's a retail is a really hard business. But you know, MLB, MLB, and NBA do it. You know, if I want to get, I can't do this with the NFL, but if I want to get all Lakers games through NBA.com or all Dodgers games through MLB, I can, I can do that. And I already, you know, one hundred percent. And and to a certain extent, MLB invented kind of the SVOD platform that we now know today with the MLB, like long before, you know, Netflix was streaming movies, uh, MLB was streaming baseball games. They do that. I mean, I'm not exactly sure. I know why Major League Baseball did that because there's 162 games. There's sure. what, 42 teams like that's there's just way more content than anybody can ever watch. The NBA, again, has so many more games, just they have an overflow of games that are not making television. So they have an opportunity to sell that off. The NFL doesn't have that. They have no extra games. <laughs> there, are no, there are no additional kind of surplus games in the NFL uh, ecosystem. Hockey has that. So, so there is going to be that. And I agree with you. I do think if it was their primary business, if it was the MLB's primary business and it was, um, and it was the NBA's primary business, I I think they might be rethinking how they're Well, aren't there aren't there various bankers who come in and do a discounted cash flow analysis and say, look, this whole era is really sunsetting where you guys are living in yeah. hog heaven with these fat cable fees that pass through and charging people, you know, ten dollars for a soda or forty dollars for parking and the largesse that you get from these TV contracts. There is at some point where you have to kind of innovate or if if not die, then kind of eat less. One hundred percent. 100%. And, and so I think that's where, like, you look at the Diamond Sports disaster. That's yeah, explain, where explain say, Diamond Sports. So Diamond Sports is was a joint venture between Bally and uh, Sinclair. Really, really ill-prepared enterprise. They just did not do the deal, rights deals the way they should. But they basically rolled up a bunch of local sports rights with baseball and NBA and hockey teams in Kansas City and various towns around the country, and then created a streaming package that was basically localized. It was a regional sports network as a direct-to-consumer streaming product. But they just did not prepare themselves for the cost. And here's a great case study. The cost necessary, the the deal terms that were necessary, or any of the, the true fundamental underpinnings of the business that they were entering. I don't understand how no one kicked the tires on this thing before it got launched. And then Sinclair backed out of it and left the whole thing kind of lingering, which kind of talks to who the people at Sinclair are. But all of those local sports teams and and Major League Baseball and National Basketball Association and National League Hockey, there's a real opportunity there to stream those games for free, you know, which is exactly how they used to. You know, there's a ton of audience sitting there really unmerchandised. There are to your point, various ways to kind of go direct to consumers for certain games and create a continuum of product offerings that kind of aren't one size fits all. That you can, you know, the way that you can buy, you know, you can buy three games at a baseball game from a sports team. You can buy 16 games during the course of the season, but you can never, like, there's so, so far less optionality around how you consume the content over electronic media they really do need to, to your point, start reinventing the product for where it's headed 
not where it's been, or actually where it is and not where it's been. You know, and the Bally sports disaster and their inability as a kind of group of television executives and sports executives to kind of solve that conundrum on the way in is, you know, it's another example of just how people go blind all the same way, you know, because they smell money and they just chase after it without kind of doing their homework. Full disclosure, please stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe and call your girlfriend and tell her about us, is fulldradio.com. We have a bunch of exciting live shows coming up starting on September 14th at the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business. James Beard recognized chef Sonny Boija. It's always sunny in Richmond, followed in October by Steve Inskeep of NPR with his new book, Rashida Jones of MSNBC in November, and uh, the big one. In December, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg joins us at the Maudlin Center. All sorts of ticket information is available on my socials at handle Full D Radio. Please do join us. If you are just joining us, full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. My esteemed guest is Evan Shapiro. He is, you can think of him as LinkedIn's chief media cartographer. He does not work for LinkedIn, but he is hugely and widely consumed on LinkedIn. He's a veteran media executive. He has many production credits under him. You can recognize him with Portlandia, with IFC, with NBC Universal. He teaches at NYU and at Fordham, and he now consults, and he is aggressively followed on both Substack and LinkedIn. While we're talking about sports and this kind of white claw uh, showdown between Charter and ESPN, white knuckle, why did I say white claw? I just plugged a product. Yeah, white claw, a white claw battle is a whole other battle. It's a whole thing. Where does YouTube sit in all of this? I, I sense that they're kind of a quiet sleep. They're like a sleeper cell. I know people out there who swear by their whatever YouTube red subscription, $50 a month or so. Google back stops it. You can get certain live sports on it. My kids swear by it. it. You know, to us, if you come home, there's the computer, there's the, there's the iMac, there's the tablet, there's the smartphones. And the difference between uh, linear TV and over the top, you know, Apple TV is just a remote control for them. They don't care if they're watching the Cake Baker show or or wrestling on uh, Peacock. YouTube is, is a, a place where all of them end up. And I wonder right. to what extent they can show up and shell out for big money, big ticket live sports and further make life miserable for the incumbent TV players. Yeah. I mean, you know, they just did. They spent billions of dollars on Sunday night football. And I think, you know, I don't believe that the industry understands how large a paradigm shift is coming when football hits YouTube this fall, which happens next week. I mean, were they just able to pay more than, you know, the traditional, the the ABCs and CBS and Fox? Yeah. They not only outbid Disney and Fox and the rest of them, they outbid Apple. So there, there's a couple of data points you need to understand how they can rationalize that and why they did that. The first is YouTube is now the largest television channel in the world. It's the largest video channel in the world already, right? So 25% of all mobile data on earth is YouTube, but it's also the largest television channel. It's the most watched channel on TV, more than Fox in the US, more than anything else around the world. Um, and a lot of their viewership is moving from the vertical version of shorts to the horizontal 16 by nine connected television version of YouTube. So it is an everyday check-in for a lot of audiences of all ages. Then you add YouTube premium to it. Then you add YouTube TV, which is, I would say, one of you know the best television products out there. It's incredibly intuitive. So wait, what is that? Is that like, is that a skinny bundle? Is that a true alternative to cable? It's not even skinny. It's really cable. How did they negotiate? How did the cable companies willfully say, yes, you could just use this as a dumb pipe for broadband. Google, have at it. I mean, that's a, it's an interesting conundrum, but that's how the, the whole thing works. I mean, Netflix built their entire disruptive enterprise over the pipes of Charter and Comcast and Cox and, and the rest of the IP. Now, it should be noted that we, going back to our earlier conversation, Charter and Comcast combined control 70 million broadband homes in the United States. The most valuable consumers on the face of the planet. There is no way to operate a media technology or entertainment company in the modern era without going through those two sets of pipes. I mean, unless you're completely outside the US. But Apple, Amazon, 
Disney, Fox, they all rely on access to those customers, whether through traditional pay TV bundle or the broadband bundle. The, the idea that those two companies are not going to exert their authority over those pipes always is kind of naive and, and kind of, and so, so the idea being that they could put their thumb on it. I remember with House of Cards when that was not a only put thing. their but not absolutely not only put their thumb on it, but look at the deal Netflix made with Comcast a number of years ago to take their servers and move them to the other side of Comcast's bottleneck. So we're not just negotiating about the terms and conditions of, of including Disney Plus in the, in the Charter and Comcast bundle. We're also talking about where's that content coming from and how's it going to look on the screen? Because we can make it look super shitty <laughs> or we can make it look really I'm great. Old enough like, to invoke, I'm old enough to invoke the debate over net neutrality, which at this point is as kind of relevant right. as the Teapot Dome scandal. <laughs> right. But like the market's going to dictate how, how net neutrality works. I don't know how I feel about that. I, I have thoughts on both sides of that, that debate. But in reality, you know, at the end of the day, you have to understand that it all has to go through a pipe to get to the to get to the end. So so YouTube is the number one video platform in the face of the earth, the number one television channel on the face of the earth. And they're the fastest growing maker of operating systems for the insides of televisions. Wow. So more televisions every day. Sony, TCL are now using the Android or the Google TV operating system. So they understand where they're headed. So they're over-investing in a piece of IP like football because they know how much stickiness it's going to generate for their entire bundle, their entire ecosystem. You know, Apple is building a very similar enterprise on their platform. Microsoft is, I said this before, building a very similar flywheel. That's how tech invests in things at a loss for years as they steal share of market. And that's the ecosystem we currently live in. We're not headed there. We are there. Sunday, NFL Sunday ticket hits YouTube next week. <laughs> this Sunday, actually, this coming Sunday. So the amount of audience shift that's going to happen in the United States around that is pretty substantial. It's going to change the behavioral science of television in the United States even further than it's already been changed. That's how YouTube sits at the center of it. That's how Google sits at the center of it. Evan, are you seeing the increased seismic volatility across college sports because of the ongoing disruption of, of linear TV and the sports bundle? I mean, I'm thinking about Look Stanford at what's there and are two teams left in the pack. Yeah, so Stanford, Stanford, and uh, UC Berkeley. Am I right? Opting out of was it the Pac-12 yeah. and going to the Pac Atlantic Coast Conference, right? To play. There are two teams left in the Pac-12. But two. that's all. That's all in pursuit of increasingly concentrated TV dollars. Am I uh, TV split? Explain yes. that for me. That's exactly right. It's 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 entirely built around um, the uh, the the television packages. Sorry. No, it's authentic. Um, it's good. It's rustically chopped. Somebody even uh, walked in before. We need a dog. We need a burglary. Yeah, something. That's my wife. <laughs> uh, we need a burglary. Um, you know, they're they're chasing the almighty television dollar and they're chasing the regional sports rights. And so they're, you know, they're hitching their wagon to the biggest star that they can find so that their share of television rights can grow. You know, whoever's running the Pac-12 clearly doesn't have a larger media strategy in mind as they're building out their plans. But, you know, someone does, you know, uh, the Atlantic division clearly does because they are, you know, they stole two West Coast teams to, to join their, you know, but someone did, to your point, did the cost benefit analysis around this and figured out how to build a better mousetrap. We'll see how long that lasts. You know, the college bowl playoff system has really enhanced the economics around college uh, sports as well. I think, though, I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity around college basketball and other smaller college sports to reorient the television economics around some combination of free and paid for the consumer as well. Yeah, work on that for me, because you explain how huge YouTube is. I think that would be shocking for nine out of 10 media consumers, young or older, everybody, unless, you know, you do walk into a college lecture. I did back in the day, I think, at the VCU brand center. And I was like, Hey kids, what do you watch on TV? They're like, uh, mister, we don't have TVs or one's landlord happened to leave a TV and a, a derelict cable connection. But they're, they're increasingly to, um, we know TikTok is huge. We know Insta, we know the big media channels, even if you're NPR, you have to have videos or CNN that are Insta ready. 
And I wonder to what extent someone like a YouTube can provision colleges. You know, individual colleges, suppose you're not part of one of these big cash flow centric right. things, but you have alums out there that are willing to pay. You have a desire to have someone else handle this and the kind of the direct to consumer retail headaches. Is that an opportunity or is that just kind of a race to conference consolidation? I don't know about that. It's a huge opportunity, I think, because I think what a lot of people don't realize is that the games that are not packaged into a conference TV deal, right? Because So they're not airing nationally. Those rights revert back to the schools themselves, whoever the home team is. So the idea that you could kind of like take all the Oregon Ducks games and all the, you know, the fighting Illini games and the Badger games, you know, and maybe we're obviously not talking about, you know, the, the, the 16 football games or 12 football games during the course of the year. But of all the basketball games, lacrosse games, hockey games. Yeah. How does lacrosse, stuff, how does a lacrosse, how do you get anybody to cover that outside of a regional sports network? But there are big lacrosse fans. I mean at Princeton, at UVA, that it might make sense to go direct to consumer? Well, crucially, they're rich. They're rich and they're rabid. Do you know what I mean? Like, so it may not be the biggest sport in the world, but the people who love lacrosse, A, have a decent amount of money. Right. <laughs> and B, boy, they're rabid, man. Like, it's just cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. So, and by the way, that's true of almost any kind of big sport. So I do think, or any any sport, like, you know, I, I did a television show once on competitive bearding. I um, that. So uh, whisker. You have a for you have so, a Forrest Gump like uh, LinkedIn resume. I do. Have a, yeah, <laughs> uh, great. I do actually. So so you know, I I, I think and pickleball is a real another right. really good example. I defy you to turn on the television at night and not find a pickleball game. So. Um, you know, curling was one of the cult hits of the of the Olympics. I think uh, isn't breakdancing now in the in we're the not Olympics far we're not summer? far from cow tipping professional amateur cow yeah, tipping right. sure. <laughs> but you know, the fewer people who love it, the more you can charge for it, and that's I think another missing part of the economics around content in our ecosystem is like the New York Times is the case study I use all the time. They have ten million paying subscribers, not a hundred million. Not 500 million, not a billion. But who really covet that login and use it as a lifestyle brand across Wordle, cooking, puzzles, news. You know, I really tip my hat to Meredith and to, you know, the former CEOs at Thompson, Mark, Mark, who's now going to be helming CNN. But in the seven or so minutes we have left with you, Evan, and I wish it could just be hours on end, but your your billable time is valuable. I want you to turn uh, the mirror. Am I getting paid? Yeah. How much am I you can you can Venmo me. I tell all my listeners at the very okay. least Venmo you. No, uh, I can Venmo You're you. Venmo Sorry. Me. At the very least, I'll okay. give you a psych copay for this because this is very therapeutic for me. Uh, cool, cool. But check this out. I want you to talk about you and making a name and hanging a shingle for yourself after being such a veteran of linear TV. I mean, we talk about IFC, NBC Universal, getting them to look at other form factors or comedy, comedy on streaming. Imagine going into a meeting with Michael Eisner and pitching him on Beard Wars, but the world has changed. We're talking about pickleball. We're talking about post-pandemic, you know, irony is not dead. So tell me about you and making a living yourself and making a name for yourself. Again, I would challenge people to go out there, you know, follow Evan on Substack and uh, LinkedIn and try to find a more useful account on LinkedIn. There's a lot of uh, fraudulence and fluffery and puffery and fake humility and humble bragging on LinkedIn, but this is actually the best LinkedIn account, I would say. The the the, the way Thank that you. you have used as a metaphor the galaxies and the universe and the black holes and the huge suns and the, the dwarf giants of media cartography is fascinating to me. And it's arresting and you want to share it and you want to take it apart. And what was your thought process in this? Or what was the disruption of Evan where you realize this is what I need to do or else I'm going to become one of these dinosaurs alongside legacy media? Um, the original inspiration, I mean, I started teaching at NYU about 14 years ago, 15 years ago, and I did it specifically at the time I was at IFC to retrain my brain around the industry every semester was to keep my sharp, my edge sharp, because you have a classroom full of 19 and 20 year olds who are paying gargantuan amounts of money to go to college. You have to know your also to use them as a focus group and as a reverse mentoring thing. So that was always the impetus of it. And, you know, the maps that I've made, uh, you know, really were invented to educate 
the class that I teach at both Fordham and NYU, what's happening in media in real time. However, you know, when I left NBC, I w- it was very clear. I was, it was my 50th birthday, actually. I left NBC, not by my own choosing. And I decided CISO had, had been this great experiment that people seemed to really dig. Um, but it became very clear that, you know, in the pulling of the plug of that project, the major media companies and most of mainstream media was just not going to be a very fun place for an old white guy to work. First of all, it's my time in leadership probably should come to a close, rightfully so, although all the other old white guys don't seem to think that. And then secondarily, you know, honestly, I just, there was a lack of satisfaction in being the disruptor. I was, I became known as the disruptor, the agent of change inside corporate media in the United States, but they think they want change. They bring you inside and then you say you have to change and they're like, hey, 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 hold on. That got just very tired. I came to New York to write and to create and to be someone who put, you know, change in the ecosystem. And so I decided to really invest in myself and create an enterprise run by myself, built around what I make that really leans into the rules of the creator economy. I give a piece of it away for free on LinkedIn. I ask for people to pay for a kind of richer version of it on Substack. And then people fall into my funnel or my web or my cult. And then at some point or another, you know, we wind up either collaborating or working together or just being in a community together. And I don't have the biggest audience at all. I don't have a, I don't have a man of hundreds of thousands of followers, but the people who follow me are the right people for what I do. And it is very much driven by some form of authentic utility pointing at making change in the right way. And it's become an economic model for me. And it's really freeing. I, I wake up every day and I read and write for two hours. I get to do paid public speaking. I consult with really amazing companies and I never really have to do anything I don't want to. That said, I also work incredibly hard every day to learn something new about something new, to wake up stupid, to share that learning with the ecosystem and then start all over the next day. It's exhausting, but because I love it, because it's a creative process, it is also something I just, I'm addicted to and cannot do without. Full disclosure, stay with us. My guest is Evan Shapiro. And I got to say that, you know, it's amazing. I am in central Virginia. You're in New York. We're doing this. We're having this conversation. The pandemic really changed things. For a while, there was a sugar high with the streamers because Disney Plus was, I think, initially the, the test drive was, what, six ninety nine a month? Like, how could you not sign up? Yeah. Kids are homeschooling. Right. They're going to give you all this stuff, the entire Star Wars library, followed by Mandalorian and everything else. But then they realize, whoops, you know, things things were catastrophic for Disney at the outset. No live sports. The theme parks are closed and everything. But they contorted and they were able to save the NBA season. They used ESPN Live World of Sports in Orlando. The stock, yeah. I think, hit nominally an all-time high. And then reality kind of sunk in. Oh, boy. Uh, disruption is costly and we're going to have to pay billions and billions in losses to kind of navigate this world from cable TV to streaming and packaging. So very often the sickest people look really healthy the last time you see them. That's that's a fascinating way of putting it. And so they all went all in on streaming without understanding that the move from wholesale to retail was going to destroy them. And then they wound up down the rabbit hole with Netflix. By the way, Disney caught and surpassed Netflix in total worldwide subscribers in less than three years. 90 days later, they fired their CEO. So the rules, they went all in on a game they did not understand. And then they wound up at the poker table chipless and they don't understand, they can't fathom what possibly happened to themselves. Meanwhile, they did it all to themselves. Now we're on the other side of that. And rather than reinvent the model for where we're going, they're trying to actually roll it all back and redo the last model in a new form. And it's it's really not going to work. The, the people that they rely on to get to their consumers have so much more leverage over them than they have themselves. And Charter being kind of like a case study, but like what happens when Disney has to renegotiate their deal with Amazon and Fire or Roku? Close us out. Predictions, prognostications. I mean, there's so much stuff. I say it's like sipping from a fire hydrant, reading your LinkedIn feed. Have you all but abandoned Twitter? Has that kind of become too much of a slum landlord? I'm off. 
driven thing. No, I've, I deleted Twitter. Yeah. I mean, how do you how do you even get your head around that to the extent that it, it is kind of media? I think Scott Galloway was romancing until about a year and a half ago, this idea that CNN could merge with Twitter and that would make sense. And next thing you know is the man's richest planet, very mercurial personality and Elon Musk, the CEO of Twitter and the SpaceX personality decides to blow, what, $47 billion on this and have crazy rules and kind of snuff out an entire social media channel. It's very hard, as you've noticed, to replicate that on threads or elsewhere. And you, you write about network effects. It's really hard to kind of snap your finger, even if you're already there with Facebook and Insta and, you know, WhatsApp is already a foot in the door that Mark Zuckerberg had. Threads is kind of, it's it's kind of not alive. It, nobody's really talking about it. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's fine. You know, I think Elon taking over Twitter, I mean, it, it wasn't the start of the end of Web2 social, but it definitely is the kind of it's the point we'll all look back to as the major turning point. You know, I don't think Facebook, Meta, whatever you want to call them, is going anywhere. But I don't necessarily think that Pinterest, Twitter, Snap, and a lot of these smaller social media platforms of from Web 2 are going to make it. Mm. And I do think that social media as we knew it is going to turn basically into the geriatric mall of media. And that, you know, Zuckerberg, as much as I think he's a goofball, and he ruined the word metaverse forever. <laughs> he wasn't wrong about where social media is headed. If you look at what's happening in Fortnite and Roblox and Minecraft and PUBG and even on FIFA Live and, and so a lot of these other places, people are gathering to play games and they're hanging out for hours with their friends. Commerce is happening in real time. Billions of dollars of merchandise being bought and sold. Open markets, open cur- uh, currencies that are kind of bespoke to their to their platforms. So Web 2.5 is happening inside what is now media's largest revenue ecosystem, which is gaming. Gaming is going to be con- is going to morph these platforms as as consumers mature into them as the Minecraft generation grows up. That Web 2.5 is going to turn into Web 3, and social media is going to move from these kind of goofy free platforms to you know these mixed currency platforms that are going to look a lot more like a metaverse and a lot less like an app um be- which speaking of which did i did i short shrift tiktok because on your cartographer's map i mean look at it you can't deny tiktok yeah. you talked about youtube's unsung numbers and the fact that it is the most important channel right now i don't think most yeah. people would understand that what's going to happen something as ubiquitous and as popular and as hot yet as radioactive as TikTok? It's a great question. I mean, I, I honestly don't know. that. That's a hard one because, you know, one, it really depends on who gets elected president of the United States <laughs> or prime minister of England or prime minister of Australia because like a decent amount of this is I'm going to ban it and that could happen. Montana. So there is that. I also think a lot of it depends on, you know, whether or not the Chinese government can distance itself from the governance of ByteDance. That that doesn't seem to be the case. That seems they seem to be really intrinsically intertwined. So it's a good question. I, I think though there there is a real bifurcation happening, which is social media is very much becoming, you know, a lean forward, ephemeral part-time experience. Yes, you'll spend 90 minutes on TikTok before you realize it, but that wasn't your intention mm. when you went there. <laughs> Whereas the CTV is becoming the home screen in the home, and it's it's becoming much more of the center of the lifestyle uh, of the family of the family unit. So I do think you're going to watch video bifurcate into vertical time wasting and horizontal sixteen by nine premium. I think TikTok is a great platform. I think it's an amazing artistic platform, and I do think if they can get out of their own way, I think it becomes one of those great hybrid experiences between commerce and content and community that the ecosystem wants. Unlike, say, something like Twitter, which really satisfies no one Evan, at this point. I'm going to close you out with one final Disney metaphor to the extent that my family and I finally braved it and made that trip in the August sweltering, hot and humid you know, Orlando scene. I think it was 102 degrees. It was intolerable. I shared that metaphor of the most half-hearted water fountain in the world is at Walt Disney World. I told you about the $2.50 raw banana at Hollywood Studios, but surely you remember the carousel of progress 
uh, which was magical for me and my dad when I was a kid. These animatronic guys starting yeah, off of at the turn of the, you know. Not, uh, the, this is Thomas Edison. This is Thomas, Thomas Edison. Edison. This we is, got an icebox. This box. is Albert Einstein. Yeah. Now is the time. Now is the best time. Now <laughs> is, is that still No, running? it's Are not. That's running? what it was GE's okay. Carousel of Progress. So I'm there describing it to my son. I was like, hey, kids, we got to go in this. Meanwhile, I think it's, it's really air conditioned, but there was no line. Nothing going on. So we go in there and yeah, they talk about the ice box and you can now iron your shirt and we got a General Electric fridge. They took out the GE mention of it. But what's so sad and to bring it back to Disney in the here and now is by the time it gets to the present, the most they could talk about is the self-timing kind of computerized oven cooking a turkey. It wasn't about streaming. You know, a few years ago, it was virtual reality. The kid playing, hey, dad, or the kid playing the bass guitar and everything. And this is the most kind of shop-worn ride in all of Disney. And it's called the Carousel of Progress. It's like right out of The Simpsons, which I believe Disney owns too right now. And to, do, to take yeah. it back that a company that was always looking behind its back and innovating and buying Pixar and going into ABC and ESPN and buying all these 20th century Fox assets is kind of out of ideas right now and out of innovation and looking to milk cable customers and the $2.50 banana. I wanted to leave you with that metaphor for whatever it's worth. Well, and, and you look at that and then you look at the messy deal. You look at the battle Disney's having over getting college football and the US Open broadcast to their customers across charter systems and then look at the messy deal. Look at what Thursday night football is going to become this, this year as a, sh as a shopping center for Amazon. And then look at what ESPN is doing, what Disney is doing with ESPN right now. It's, it's, it's like watching two different species exist in the same ecosystem. And I just feel bad for this poor limping gazelle next to these major big tech lions that are clearly just going to eat them for lunch. Sounds like an it's Animal really, Kingdom ride too, right? My ride. <laughs> it is. I mean, and, and, and I, the idea of Iger's thigh being chewed on by t Tim Cook's, you know, uh, Big Maine is now stuck. Ooh, metaphors galore. Sir, you are a hoot, and I'm so grateful to you for coming on this show. Evan Shapiro, media cartographer, LinkedIn, Supernova, Renegade of Funk. Uh, could you give us your, your social media handle to the extent you have any or your Substack link? Uh, Substack is uh, eShap Media War and Peace. Uh, LinkedIn, I'm Evan Shapiro. Uh, I am on threads. If you want to be there, I am on TikTok, but I don't think. Let's stick to LinkedIn. Evan, I appreciate it. You are the man. Thanks a lot. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan and Case Graham at Notterly, my creative co-conspirators. Again, if you are listening to us on the radio, note that while we often cut for broadcast link, the entirety of every interview is available on podcast. The link, please subscribe early and often, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Follow along on all the socials at handle fulldradio. And a shout out to our listeners on NPR member station, WVTF Radio IQ News. Message me if you too would like to carry full disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. Stay tuned for huge live events at the University of Richmond's Robbins School of Business, including NPR's Steve Inskeep, MSNBC's Rashida Jones, Chef Sonny Boija, and in December, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. And catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week.